I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem or several poems. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities. We hope gain for poems that interest us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive, writing.upen.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm in Philadelphia, a few blocks from our beloved but currently empty Kelly Writer's House, joined here through the quasi-magic of Zoom by Douglas Kearney, whose six books include the award-winning poetry collection Buck Studies 2016 Libretti, Someone Took Their Tongues, also 2016, and Criticism, Mess and Mess and 2015, whose newest collection of poems, Yay, Doug, Show, S-H-O, I read it in TypeScript, oh man, it's good, will be out in April 2021, published, to be published by Wave, who has won many grants, awards, fellowships, who teaches creative writing at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, and whose Sharpened Visions, a fabulous open online course, is a close and beloved sibling to our ModPo here. And by Derek Bayou, poet, publisher, anthologist, promoter of arts communities, deep thinker and activist around community and poetics and the role of the small press, founder of House Press a long time ago and No Press, N-O, whose recent work has shifted to conceptual fiction especially visual translations and rewritings, whose magnificent edition, Nights on Prose Mountain, Nights on Prose Mountain, The Fiction of B.P. Nickel, is a book I cherish. And I happened to be in Montreal on the night Coach House celebrated its arrival a few years back. He lives in Paradisal, Banff, Alberta, where he is, we are all happy to say, grateful to know, the director of Literary Arts at the Banff Center for Arts and Creativity, and by Tracy Morris, who hardly needs introducing to Poem Talk listeners, or really anywhere, performance artist, vocalist, scholar of performance studies, page-based poet, teacher, scholar, band leader, improvisationist, whose many books include Who Do With Words, Chacks 2018, and Hand Holding Five Kinds 2016, who co-edited with Charles Bernstein, Best American, Experimental Writing, a.k.a. Bax, for 2016, whose Pensound page is a treasure trove of powerful performances that swerve and blur and converge and do things with words and sounds, who is a professor of poetry at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and who I'm glad and proud to say is a longtime friend of us at the Kelly Writers House. Tracy, Tracy, it's good to see you. How are you? Know how to use what, you, you know how to use <laughs> I just I'm just kind of anti. You're anti everything, but you're not anti colloquy. You're not anti get together. So you know Zoom is the way. Anyway, enough of that. Doug, it's good to see you. It's good to see you again. Huh? As always, it's been too long. And Derek, it's Derek Day here at the Writer's House. There's got to be another way of putting that. But uh, <laughs> great to be joining you. Well, I mean, let me just say that at noon, the three hour, three and a half hours earlier than this recording, we, uh, Derek, joined the weekly ModPo uh, live webcast, which was so much fun. And a few hours after this recording, I, I guess I want to say a few hours later, Derek will have, by the time you hear this, will have given a wonderful reading. The wonderful part is kind of a futuristic assumption. <laughs> Uh, he uh, sponsored by the Writers House. So Derek, it's Derek Day. Congratulations! Thank you for hanging out with us for so many hours. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I, I picture it as a as a day in Philly, day at the Writers House with you, uh, without without uh, leaving the the comforts of my own office. We really, really wanted that. And you know, Doug and and Tracy, Tracy for many times, many over the years, and Doug twice in recent years, got in under the COVID wire, and it was great to see them at the Writers House. But we'll do it, Derek. We'll do it. Well, today we four have gathered here to talk about two sound poem slash performance pieces by B.P. Nickel. One is Dada Lama, Dada Lama of 1968, and the other is a small song that is his of 1974. Now, Dada Lama 
was published by Kevin McCarthy in an edition of 300 copies and is available at bpnickel.ca. Look at that. There it is. Um, as a PDF, you can get at bpnickel.ca. A recording was included in Journeying and the Returns, Coach House Press, 1967. God, Derek's got it all. <laughs> let, the re- let the record for audio listeners show that Derek is showing us uh, his, his library, BP Nickel. And the, uh, the other piece, a small song that is his, has been long part of Penn Sound's extensive BP Nickel page. It was segmented by one of our staffers from a rare 60-minute cassette published in 1971 by High Barnett Company in Toronto. It is performed on that tape along with Love Poem for Gertrude Stein, Beast for Hugo Ball, and other BP Nickel favorites. It later appeared in Love, a Book of Remembrances, published by Talon Books in 1974. So here now is, for your listening pleasure, is BP Nickel performing Dada Lama, and then a small song that is his. small song that is his. Adore, 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 an opening, an O, an H, a leg, a table, or a window and a W, a sky that is D, a lake that is F, E. D E F F F F F D D E E E D F F E F E F E F E. Me, you are me, or I H and D, M E E F D, O. D F H E W F F E W H D O W D F. Initial impressions, real quick. Doug, first, what do you feel, hear, understand, reckon? Going with the first part of the sound sequence of Dada Lama, um, initial impression, um, thinking about multi tracking, thinking about uh, the idea of the terminal limit of the page versus the terminal point of the page versus the terminal point of the body in the sense of multi-tracking. And I keep thinking about Rite of Spring. Keep thinking about Rite of Spring, that sort of opening of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. And um, in relationship to a small song that is his, um, every time I was thinking about this one, I kept thinking of E.E. Cummings, Anyone Lived in a Pretty How Town. And also uh, the Michelle Gondry, uh, directed video for Star Guitar by 
the Chemical Brothers for the kind of repetition, which is something that maybe I'll talk about later, but the repetition key to the letters. Wow. Oh, that's so great. You put a whole lot of stuff on the table. Tracy Morris, can you put a few more things on the table? What are your first thoughts as you're listening? I think it's a lullaby. Hmm. Um, and it's the, the ending where you hear the ambient sound of the recording with when he's no longer speaking mm-hmm. that sort of uh, confirmed that for me, like someone drifting off to sleep or sending a child off to sleep with the sort of an ambient sound so that they would go off to sleep. So, um, yeah, that's my impression of it, that it's a lullaby and a story in a lullaby. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Derek, you want, I want you to give first impressions, but I also just want to throw a spanner into my open-ended question. And um, I heard Doug say first, thinking about the multi-track recording, it's the 60s. So it wasn't the simplest thing to do what he did, let's face it. Well, yeah. Um, what, I, what, I, what really strikes me about Dalai Lama is that, yeah, it's 1968. They're not using delay, he's not using delay pedals or anything, but he's also 24 years old. This is, this is somebody to me who's really working through his influences. And, and at that point, sound poetry was really new to, to a Canadian conversation. And you can, to me, it sounds very much like, I mean, it is Dada Lama, but it sounds like a Dada sound poem. To me, it sounds like Hugo Ball. It sounds it like Tristan's are. It sounds like that period and working through that. And by the time you get to small song, it feels like there's a lot more confidence there where he can say, you know, to come up with a poetics of a letter, you know, like, and just like, this isn't sound, it's not phonemes, it's just a letter, a D, an L. And that, yeah. that really excites me. Doug, will you pick up one, you said six or seven things. When you, <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, no, that wasn't meant as a criticism. That was great. I mean, you just threw some stuff, some spaghetti on the wall. Will you pick one of those strands of spaghetti off and say some more? You said so many things. Since Derek was just talking about um, a small song that is his, um, the DEF, there's a way in which, in reading the first stanza, um, it's almost like uh, Nickel is assigning uh, an image, like a kind of an acoustic image, to the yeah. to the uh, typographical image of each letter, you know, like a, a, a an opening an O, right? And so you know you have the kind of visual pun of O as an opening, right? But then we have an H, a leg, a table, and I just love the way that a leg and a table move through uh, the sort of synecdochal, like a leg then becomes a table, but H also has that um, high vertical ascender of the H, typographically speaking, um, wow. and so. There's one way to read it where you can sort of map the D as sky and uh, lake, at two variations of lakes as E's and F's. And so I was just kind of looking at it that way and sort of seeing D, E, F almost as indexes. Oh, um, and so going like uh, sky, lake, 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 sky, sky, yeah. lake, 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 sky, lake, lake. And so, oh, and, and this becomes a sort of pastoral at that point. And there's even a way in which the, the poem moves from, from table to, to window to sky. So you almost sort of move from a room into an exteriority. So, so there was that and there's other stuff that I don't want to. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> well, you know, I usually, I, I was thinking of saving this next question to the three of you for the end where we generalize more, we move a little beyond BP Nickel and talk about the whole problem of the relationship between a sound poem, so-called, and a visual poem or concrete poem, so-called. But I think I want to go there right away because I want to ask each of you, starting with Tracy and then Derek, all the three of you are engaged more or less, you know, every time you do your work. Sometimes, you know, you're a page, you're a page writer, but often it's you're thinking about two marginal spheres. One marginal sphere is the poem as sound because that it's marginal in a very traditional sense of poetry. Like I want to read my Robert Frost poem. and What does that have to do with the sound? And then another area of marginality is, of course, treating letters as letters, the alphabetism of a concrete poem. And, me, and the three of you are sometimes engaged with the translation from one side of that marginality, the sound poem, to because you want to represent what you're doing in sound on a page. All three of you wrestle with this. So I guess I want to add, based on what Doug was just saying about us, uh, a small song that is his. 
I just want to ask the three of you in the most basic way, how you do that translation, sorry for the word translation, how you make that shift from, okay, how do I take this thing which I conceived of as music or sound and how do I put it on a page? And there's some innovation going on there and it's hard. Tracy, you've done it. How do you, how do you grapple with it? Is it new each time? Do you have a plan? Uh, well, I'm gonna not answer your question and then okay. answer it because I, I wanted to just get at this, this legend that, that Doug was talking about it. I, I um, did an, a similar transcription, but what I came out at the other end was that as uh, like sort of just taking those, the words in the aggregate um, is, was less pastoral and more um, the mythology, the, the Greek myth of Narcissus. Mm. I was thinking about the title and then the repetition of an opening and the glass reflection, you know? So sky and lake and lake and sky and his and his small song. So it's like, how did that key become a series of words that became a story? And that for me, that led to the story of narcissus. But yeah. that could be totally nerding out on it, you know? Um, and the reason I wanted to mention that first is because I actually don't write a lot of my sound poems out. Um, I actually consider it a political statement not to transcribe sound mm -hmm. poems. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'm saying all of this to say that the relationship between typography, words, transcription, and sound, there's such different entities. And I think yeah. that BP Nickel is underscoring that because in um, Dada Lama, we don't see an actual transcription from the, the sound recording to the page. It's almost like they're pinpoints that we can identify what the what the general energy is on the page. Yeah. But even the number of repetitions, and you could even say that there's some slippages in terms of the transcriptions throughout the, the sonic, you know, through the oration, they're not exactly the same. So I think he's saying that there are different kinds of media that interact with the idea in different ways. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask Derek to respond to what Tracy just said, but I'm going to throw something else out there. We have for Dada Lama a pretty good transcription of the sounds. We, I don't know, maybe Derek does, whether that was done post facto or whether that was a score. But for instance, toward the end of that piece, this is one of the sections of Dada Lama, it's not all of it. There's that um, lots of Fs and then a T, one T and then S. It's a, f you know, and he does that three times. And he follows the score pretty well because um, in the second line, F, 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 F is followed by an ITS. So it becomes, and then the third one, there's an L, flit. So flit's in the middle and it's very faithful. And I'm throwing that out there because to stare at that song, that piece, to stare at that song is to follow along, but that's not, necessarily the way to apprehend this piece it's just one way all right Derek do you want to respond to what Tracy just said yeah um absolutely the um but I'm also not going to because I'm going to go back to something that Doug said as well uh and that was uh that idea of the pastoral I love the fact that a uh, small song that is his actually starts with a pun um it doesn't door. start with it's it's like a door as in love but we're setting a room. So it's a door into the room that the way into the poem is through love. And then he, he grafts the room. The H to me looks like a chair at a table, a chair, a leg, a table. And then, and then it's like, look around the room and then out the window, you move out, out of the room of poetry, out the window into a larger landscape view. That's just like, just letters. It's you and me and the alphabet. And he takes that there are sections that are alphabetical def and then and then it starts moving away from that so def and then he kind of like stutters or or spins on that for a second d ddd e e dff efe fefe like sits there and then out in out into the larger alphabet into you know w or owdf so he's he's moving out and and i love that idea that you're basically charting a way of looking at what a poem is. You can enter into the room of poetry and then this takes you out of that into something else. It, that's, that's really exciting. And I love that, that pun, that oral pun at the beginning. But then when you get to um, the, the play between the two, 
I don't think that, I don't know uh, if the score, which the copy I have was published in 68, existed before the sound poem, the cop, uh, which originally came out in 67. I don't know if it was scored and then performed from score or <laughs> performed and then transcribed. I'm not sure of that, but the score is not exact because like right. the number of repetitions, the overlapping of echo, um, the technological side, that's not represented in the typewritten score, the type score, right. but it, it points, it suggests. And um, mm. I don't know, but it looks like there is still a lot of room in there for improvisation. Yeah. Um, thank you. Doug, go anywhere with this? Yeah. So, I mean, going back to the section that you were talking about, um, specifically out um, with the, there's something else that's happening um, and it's almost like a flip book. Because if you look at that stanza, it's stretching out, it's animating at a visual level as well. So the FTS becomes fits, right? So, right. so you know, and, and so that could, you know, there's, there's multiple possibilities there in terms of like, you know, sort of a, a sudden uh, moods or sudden uh, spasms, um, but also filling in. But then it stretches out more. It still, it keeps morphing. And it becomes flits, right? So to kind of fly and move in a flighty sort of sort of way, um, and so visually and sonically, um, if we look at the kind of alignments, you know, that are working with you know like this at the typographic level with a poem that was most likely set on a typewriter, so they have these sort of shared um, m widths, right? That's this one section, this one stanza where a sort of symmetry is is is. Is, is, is surrendered. And so visually it cues us in to sort of see that, that there's growth, there's growth there. And the fact that the, that the kind of location of the growth actually reveals one of the, one of the few places where we could actually see what we might think of as a word in English, right? That, that becomes fits, becomes flits. Mm. And that, that sort of growth maintains, um, like English growth, I think is really interesting. Let me play just the, the end of this section of Dada Lama and ask Tracy and then Derek to respond to what they're hearing based on what Doug has just said. So here we go. It turns out I kind of misheard it many times I've listened because I imagined that the, all those F's and the T and the S had come separately, but it's, it's never distinct. It's always mixed in with the other tracks, isn't it? What did you hear, Tracy? I'm uh, even more firmly committed to interpreting this as a lullaby, as a possible way of understanding it, without the L's though, right? Um, so, you know, I was thinking like, since since it starts off like primarily with vowels and then it goes into these heavy consonants that a lot of times vowels are the ones that give are the parts of the word or phoneme that give us like a sense of openness and action and then the 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 consonants sort of give us a limitation right and so to start off with this sense of openness it made me also think about the sort of culturally specific way that he's driving the sound. And what I mean particularly is the, the Canadianness of these sounds, like the Canadianness of these verbs and um, how he sort of establishes 
his place, you know, I think all of the four horsemen are Canadian, right? Um, and then like sort of the limitations of what grammar structure or the superstructure is that sort of limits how we can interpret things. So, um, I, you know, that's kind of how I was hearing it at first. It's like, oh, but those vowels, I mean, they're all the vowels that we share as English speakers, but it seems like there's a, there's a particular sort of accentuation that's Canadian that we can interpret that first section as, which is very sweet and very open. And then like almost a crush of the rest of the English world is um, with the, not just the consonants, but that there's very little voweling in the, within the consonants once we get deeper into the poem. Wow, Derek, I'm gonna invite you to geek out on the Canadianness a little bit, particularly because what Tracy just did a North American geopolitical reading of sound, which is just, I mean, just really amazing what she just did. And you're the right person to respond to this. Can you please? I, I think I think that that's really interesting. I, I, I think it's fascinating if you look at something like a Hugo Ball poem, it still sounds German. You know, it still has a, a Germanic sound because of the way the, the assumptions, I assume, at the author's level, at the poet's level, of how vowels and how consonants combine, right? Surely Schritter's also. Yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah, it sounds, there's a Germanic sound to it uh, because of those, the assumptions. And I think that, I think that it's very smart to look at this and go, okay, you're coming from a linguistic background. The assumptions you think you can make through sound are going to be apparent even in a sound poem. So yeah, I think there is a, uh, a Canadianness to it. And, and as I mentioned, I would say that this is, a very early Canadian sound poem and still working through those influences. So it takes that Schwitter's ball side and then starts to push it into an English language, into a Canadian English. But then when I look at the score, it's actually a very, for me, it's a very traditional score. The, like what he says is actually what's written down here. You're not seeing it's typewritten. It's, you know, the margin is it's flush left. It's ragged right. It, you know, it's the poem itself looks like a poem. It's broken into stanzas. Uh, there's no overlap. There's no uh, breaking a horizontal. There's the things that could happen that might suggest the experimentation and overlap in, in technology isn't apparent in the score. It looks like a poem. To get back to what Doug was mentioning, I wonder if there is a there doesn't seem to be as much of an engagement with something like Charles Olson's idea of like using the, the, the typewriter as graphing the length of the, of the, of the voice, right? So like the first whee doesn't look longer than, than, than Juan, you know, like there doesn't seem to be a suggestion of how long this line is um, comparatively within stanzas. So the pst and the pst, are you suggesting that this longer. is modest, a modest concretism, a square concretism trying to make his way? I, I think that it's, um, I think it's clean. I think it's prescriptive. I don't think that it's, uh, I think it's, once again, considering the time and his age, I think it's extremely ambitious. Um, 23, 24 years old. But I do think that what he's doing visually is relatively modest compared to what he's doing orally and sonically. Yeah. Can I follow up uh, and ask Doug and Tracy or, and or Tracy, can we do a, forgive me, a, a kind of um, more literalistic or even pedestrian reading of the title of the second piece, a small song that is his. Um, what does that mean? I mean, I can think of a psychobiographical reading of it. Um, aligned with what Derek was just saying about this person being early in his career. But what, what do you take to be the meaning of that title, Doug? A small song that is his. As I was engaging it, I kept wondering whether the first stanza was the song and then the rest of the poem is a key. Um, or if the or if the first stanza is the kind of key and the rest of the poem is 
uh, is is the song. And this also takes me back to what Derek was saying earlier about, you know, the pun of a door um, as being a room in. Well, you know, and I will I will I will I will go in and I will take the hit of that old, old pun, you know, that every, you know, poetry 101 class has to do at some point that a stanza is also a room. And so, so if we leave that room, we enter the rest of the of the poem. And so if the rest of this poem is a small song, and now I'm going to be, I'm going to tell on myself and also be as literal and pedestrian as I think the question was demanding. Um, I was falling down a YouTube rabbit hole the other day. And for some kind of reason, I ended up on a website that was showing, I think it was um, uh, Smooth Criminal by Michael Jackson, but it had been edited so that it was only every other beat. So that of course makes the song half as long, right? So the song is smaller. So if we're looking at individual letters and not mm. whole words, then the song is a smaller song. So one way to kind of, to think of the idea of a small song, if we look at just that part, is to look at these as lyrics um, to a now much smaller song than what we would expect mm. because instead of full words, we're just getting individual letters. Um, potentially in that way. Um, and so, and, and the his, right, um, there is that moment where we have me, you, or me, or I. And so we have that kind of blurring of subjectivity, which I think is also goes to the narcissist um, uh, idea, but also makes me think of the interplay between lake and sky. So those kind of reflective spaces, which is also riffing off of the narcissist idea. So the his, the small song that is his, um, I think it all blends in those spaces to be. Oh, that's yeah. great. Fantastic. You went all the way back to literalistic and pedestrian. I really, <laughs> I, I Tracy, what you, what, <laughs> yeah. What are you thinking? Uh, um, I, I really mean to ask that open-ended question, but also throw one in as an alternative, which is, and forgive me for being annoying, but you know, somebody, list, somebody listening to this poem talk will think, God, I like the poem talk episodes where they, they talk about a poem that I can read and there's some semantic meaning and this, I don't have to be, I don't have to listen. I mean, um, what is all this stuff about sound poetry and why are these people taking this so seriously? It's just a, it's just a bunch of noise. Sorry for that. I'm just throwing that in in the background. You don't have to respond to it. <laughs> But it would sure be great because so many people listening to Poem Talk are, this would be an introduction to sound poetry for them. Maybe the first time they've heard something like this. So I just wanted to throw that out there, not necessarily for you, Tracy, but just generally. So what are you thinking? Um, I was trying to sneak a little bit of that in when I was talking about the linguistics of vowels versus consonants, right? Like, what are they, what is the point of making these particular sounds? Yeah, um, one of the, the references that I thought about and what drove the narcissist story for me was thinking of the, the underplay or the undertone of death actually in both of the poems, but particularly in this one, um, you know, a, sm a small, you know, and I, I focused on um, a small and made me think about um, the way that death is described in Shakespeare. And I know it seems like it's a little bit far afield, but, you know, I thought about that last part of Macbeth and how he talks about how small life is, you know, um, uh, out, out brief candle and, you know, uh, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and is to her no more. So, you know, it's kind of a definitely a Debbie Downer with old Macbeth after his wife kicks the bucket because she was it was difficult to live in that life, the killer of the king life. But but there's, there's something about the brevity that he's like asserting here that makes me think of that it's talking about death. And the thing about, you know, narcissists thought he was so fine that he died for it. But so he made actually his life smaller and himself smaller by thinking about this. And, and I know that this read uh, is, is not necessarily what he, uh, what BP Nickel intended, but it's definitely something that I was, you know, that it made me feel about. There's some, there's a deep sadness in the sounds and the way that they, um, they conclude, I feel. Um, so I just want to say quickly in terms of people who don't get sound poetry, the source of poetry is sonic. 
what you feel about the poem, especially the sound poems, is just as val valuable as what you interpret with your mind. So I'd say start with feeling it and not trying to interpret it and then see how that, you know, and see what, what happens. And if it doesn't do anything for you, then okay. But maybe come back and not worry about it sounding like a so-called poem with a capital P and just as, what's that make me think of? What's that make me feel of? Because it's likely that the person was doing that on purpose. Right. And that's, uh, at least in the U.S., in high school, that is all beaten out of us by the way poetry is typically taught. And, but, the, but one's first instinct is to do exactly what you're doing. And I can't imagine three people better to introduce to possibly to teachers who are scared of teaching this kind of poetry how to do it. Derek, you've, you've, I, if I, unless I'm wrong, you've taught, you've taught high school for a while. Yeah, I taught high school for a few years and college and university. And um, certainly, you know, Shakespeare is still very much on the curriculum. Um, but the idea that, um, I really like that idea that the, of, of the scale and the size and the melancholy of this particular poem, I, I think that the, 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 the poem for me, the, the, the scale I think is really interesting. And once again, I think that we, we teach our students that poems are made of feelings. The feelings are the byproduct, you know, poems are made of sounds and letters and words and the combination thereof. And the feeling that they evoke is that's the product, you know, that's, that's the end, but the process of getting there, this, this takes, this poem takes it straight down to the material and say, actually, I can evoke a feeling, a melancholy from a D and H, a W, you know, just mm -hmm. put three letters in a row and I can make you cry. You know, like poems are not made of feelings. Poems are made of letters. And it's this, I, I, I think this is, this is a beautiful card trick of a poem. It's like yeah. these yeah. tiny little moves and you still get that same emotional investment. I think that still our high school teachers are, are, being, are asking our students, what does, what does the poet really mean here? Right, you know, exactly. And if you don't get it right, you get it wrong. And it's like, right. no, that's what these kind of talks are worthwhile. It's like spitball it. And what do you yeah. think? And how does it feel? And like, there's no right or wrong answer here. It's a chance to discuss what does an O do? What right. does a W do? Can I, can I say something about that? Please. Yeah, I mean, like, there's this beautiful moment, Derek. Thank you for, for that description. There's this moment where you can see, and, and maybe, maybe, it, maybe it chimes with this idea of death or dissolution, or maybe it chimes with this idea of returning us to the poem being made of letters, which is if we look at the kind of central... Uh, the second, the third stanza with me, you or me or I H and D, and then M E starts to pull away from being a word, right? Me, and gets broken down to its just kind of in individual letters. Now, is that dissolution? Is that spreading out? Is that are we to think about that as me? Are we to think about that as an extension, or is it me? Is that still a word or is that the individual letters or is that now a kind of visual stand in for a voice, the subjectivity of the poem? But in that moment, because there are the choices being made, right? Any combination of letters, theoretically, at some at some level might have been able to do similar kinds of work. We have the alphabetical section that you that you mentioned before. So any sequence of three letters, right, uh, to then move to M-E-M-E -E, just does this thing visually that has a possible sonic uh, relationship. And it's interesting to think about, you know, we use the word score, right? Um, and I don't know if, if, you're, if you'll remember this, Tracy, but like years ago, we had a phone conversation, I think, where we were just trying to, or maybe it was an email correspondence, where we were talking about how to read enjambment, not in a in a in a poem that was you know moving towards uh, the concrete, but just like how to voice in Jammin. and so like thinking about the Dada Lama poem, and as we talked about the overlapping, right? There was a moment in my own in my own thinking where I was like, well, is this lyrics or is this score? Which is to say, are we looking at this as song lyrics, right? Or, um, or as a score. 
And then that moves it to a, a place that's different than, than, than a lot of even more conventionally formatted poems. Because I would argue that even when your words aren't going all over the page, the expectation uh, for a lot of readers is that the poem is acting as some kind of score, um, right? The line break indicates something. Just being interested in this relationship between what the eye does, um, not necessarily better than what the voice does, but the idea of pun. There's a visual, there's an ocular pun there that I just find really striking that also I think signifies something uh, mm. that connects to this idea of returning us to the letter, but also to a kind of uh, relationship, with the integrity of me. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Um, what I'd like to do is have a lightning round, one quick lightning round to talk about B.P. Nichols' importance, influence, um, possibly how listening to B.P. Nichol at one point in your own career became important or what kind of general influence um, how important is what he did? These are early instances, but of course he, you know, he went on to do things and have quite a bit of influence. And today there's been a sort of resurgence of influence, partly because Derek has been putting together, put together the prose for that book, which a lot of people didn't know about. So who wants to start? What's his importance? Tracy, would you start? My, um, first experience with BP Nichols was as a collaborator in the Four Horsemen. And the first time I heard the Four Horsemen was actually in Canada, in Banff. So, you know, it's like uh, really happy um, to, to, that Derek has indulged some of my Canadian fascinations in this conversation. Um, but but that, that, that section in Ron Mann's film where they just screamed together, it just blew my mind when I heard it. It was just before I started doing sound poetry. So I think that it's somewhere in the back. I've also had like the pleasure of speaking to Paul Dutton a couple of times. He's a very nice person. And um, so being part of that, that, that incredible family is great. And I highly recommend that film because for people who are not used to sound poetry, you see it in the context of a lot of wonderful poets um, from the 80s. So it has a sort of classical patina on it just because it's, you know, 40 years ago or so. Great. That's perfect. Can you spell out, anybody actually spell out the reference? The film by man is called what? Poetry in Motion. Poetry in Motion. And it's widely available, Derek? How do we find it? I think you can find it online. Uh, not yeah. positive, to be sure. Possibly YouTube. And the Four Horsemen are very well represented in Pensound, but of course, many other audio sites. Um, great. Thank you. Derek, your turn. Uh, this is a big question. I know it'll... Be hard to synthesize it, but yeah, I think that Tracy nickel. hits a lot of the important points. I think the that idea that being a poet to me, I, obviously, I never met him, uh, BP Nickel, but the it's the, the thing I learned from BP that I didn't learn from a lot of other writers is that the role of a poet is more than just writing a poem, it's community work, it's publishing, it's editing, it's mentoring, it's partnering, it's collaboration, it's all of those things. It's creating a poetic conversation. It's, it's enabling new writers. It's being uh, inspired and, and creating space. And that to me is what, that's his lasting impact. Thank you, Derek. Doug? Yeah, well, I'm just gonna say this. I, the, 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 when I was first influenced by BP Nickel, I didn't even know it because I was probably watching an episode of Fraggle Rock. Um, that was probably the beginning of BP Nickel um, influencing me. But I'm going to pull a quote from a 1974 interview, which is an, an idea that I carry with me all the time. This is a Nickel saying, many people don't realize that play is serious. It's a serious thing. It's enjoyable and it's a serious thing. If you watch children play, they are very serious. It's their work. Games demand work and involvement. Love that. Thank you. Okay, so now it's time for final thoughts. Something you came here today wanting to say about this work that you didn't get a chance. It could be anything very particular. It could be very general. We'll start with Tracy, then Derek, then Doug. Final thought, Tracy? Yeah, I, I wanted to just also shout out um, BP Nicholson and, and, and Fraggle Rock because I think 
the title says that a poet was involved, you know, like the title of the show says that it was a poet. And I just can't think of a better uh, tribute to VP Nichols than having his one of his concrete ish poems literally in concrete in Canada. I mean, it's just uh, it, this uh, his a late poem um, or a poem with a lake in it. And it's just it's such a beautiful he's a beloved person. And he's a beloved person by the people in his community as well as outside. So you can't think of a better tribute than that. Fantastic. Thank you. Derek, final thought? Uh, final thought around BP. Read them. Uh, go through bpnickel.ca and just, you know, grab all the PDFs and grab everything you can off of Pin Sound and just try. Take this stuff and play with it and see where that very serious play leads you. Would you say, Derek, that one's first experience with the recordings, the audio recordings is um, possibly intimidating when you, you're, you're trying to imagine that it'll be generative and productive. Like I can do that. I want to do that. But is it possible to be, uh, I'm, I'm going to repeat the word intimidated. I mean, it's an impressive thing that he does and hard to do. Absolutely. It's intimidating. I think for a new, a new reader to approach, uh, you know, a sound poem and hear, and you're like, okay, what do I do? What do I do now? And well, I don't know, shout back. Uh, you know, try to do it yourself. You're like, I just heard this crazy poem and it sounds like this. See if you can wrap your lips around it. Mm. And, and yeah, it's intimidating and it's frightening. But then you start realizing that, no, this is just like Doug was saying, it's serious play. And allowing it to be risk that you can do this, fall flat in your face, be an apprentice, try again. And that you don't have to know it first round. He didn't have to know it first round writing it and allow yourself to learn. I love it. Doug, final thought? Yeah, just uh, the cover of the book, uh, Love, uh, from which a uh, small song that is his comes from. I, I want to consider that like the technological, the, the textual strategy for reading the poems. If you look at that uh, cover, um, I think it's like a guide on how to read these poems and potentially any poem you encounter. Similarly to how Dada Lama is called a sound sequence. Well, going back to what Derek and Tracy both said, that could be a definition of any poem, not just a sound poem, mm. a sound sequence. Love it. Uh, my final thought is uh, meta meta because uh, I want to reflect for a second on the idea of doing this poem talk and then Derek and I could have organized it because Derek was going to be, uh, it was Derek, it's going to be Derek day. The, I, <laughs> the idea of bringing Tracy and Doug into this conversation is itself my final thought. Uh, I just love the fact that it's the three of you talking about this, this work. Just, just think you're like the perfect, <laughs> perfect threesome to do it. So that was kind of like gathering paradise, but you know, I'll get one of those too. We like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise indeed, which is a chance for us to spread wide our narrow Dickinsonian hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or the art world. Who's ready to gather some paradise? Anybody ready? Derek, you're first. Building on this conversation and a, a text that I would strongly recommend everybody check out there is a brand new edition of Norbesi Phillips' Zong uh, just out from Silver Press. And I would run out and order that and add that to your library uh, in terms of all the conversations we've had here. This book is unbelievable and beautiful and it is so lovely to see it back in print again. Check it out, check it out, check it out. Thank you, Derek. Great, great suggestion. Doug, gather some paradise. Absolutely. Obsidian issue 45.2 features some work by M. Norbese Phillip. Um, her undex in a section that I was fortunate enough to edit called See What I'm Saying Is, Writing and Image, features just a number of poems, some of which will be concrete, some of which will be other, uh, some of which are other uh, approaches to the text, to the image and text, but it's hot off the presses and will be still quite warm by the time this comes out and Whenever you listen to it in the future, it should still be available. So, I love that recommendation. And Doug even used recommendation voice. <laughs> Indeed. <to do> that. <laughs> I love that. I am a professional. Um, <laughs> <you're right. laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, you really are. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for that recommendation. Um, Tracy Morris, Gather Some Paradise. Uh, I'd like to recommend um, a lovely uh, little uh, book that I think is, is going to make some waves called Black Space by Andy Plan. It's a series of essays, thoughts, interviews with uh, uh, Black experimental artists. Uh, it's, it's, it's very charming, very smart, um, on as a poet. Uh, and I think that he'll be known for much more as this book begins to, um, spread its wings. Fantastic. My paradisal selection is Derek's edition of the fiction of BP Nickel. And I would ask you, Derek, to turn to page 18. And at the top, there's a very short two-line section of a prose piece. And I'd have wondered if you would read it, not once, but twice. And that's what I want to put into the record as Paradiesel. And of course, this is Coach House, and you can buy a copy. It's a lovely book. Derek, okay. here's B.P. Nichols in prose. So uh, from B.P. Nichols, uh, Nights on Prose Mountain, part three. I have a vision. I have not. A vision has I. A vision has not. If I have a vision, I have I. If I have not, I have a vision of I. I have a vision, I have not. A vision has I, a vision has not. If I have a vision, I have I. If I have not, I have a vision of I. Thank you. Nights on Prose Mountain, Coach, Coach S Books, edited by our Derek. Uh, well, that's all the John... We have time for on Pump Talk today. Pump Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Poetry Foundation and poetryfoundation.org. And I forgot the Kelly Writer's House. I've been doing this a little bit and I can't believe I almost forgot the Writer's House. Thanks so, so much to my guests, Doug Kearney, Tracy Morris, and Derek Bayou, and to Pump Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Pump Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. A shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Pump Talk. This is Al Phil Reese, and I hope you'll join us next month for another episode of Pump Talk.